Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. I am glad to be back uh, with you uh, this morning. I look very different, but many of you are still sitting in the same spot as you were about 20 years ago. So um, so I do see uh, some familiar faces out there this morning, and I'm uh, glad to be able uh, to fill in for Aaron this morning as um, as he is, as him and Adrian are both um, away. Whenever Aaron asked me to fill in for him, um, he wanted me to continue on going through the Gospel of John, um, picking up where he left off um, last week. And so if you would take your Bibles and we're going to be looking this morning at the Gospel of John chapter 7 verses 1 through 39. So Gospel of John chapter 7 verses 1 through 39. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle writes this. He says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While he said, While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, He is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. So who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, that it is not from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd murdering these things about him. And the chief, chief priests and Pharisees sent officials to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to be going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not be able to find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will not seek me? You will not find me and where I am. You cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those he believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray as we get started this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that we can come together as your people, and that we can come and we can study your words, Lord, and that we can gather as your people to learn how your words apply to our lives. And this morning, we ask that with the next few moments that we have here together, that you would keep our hearts and our minds focused upon you. Lord, that we would become a people who are so immersed and wrapped around your word that we let the word this morning transform our hearts and our minds in only a way that your true and holy word can do. Lord, we pray for those this morning that are sick, that are in need of healing. Lord, we pray for those in our community this morning that need spiritual healing and need the truths that can only come from your word. And Lord, we ask that during this time, you would keep our hearts and our minds focused upon you for the glory of Christ. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. 
so this morning, as we are continuing to look at the Gospel of John, we find ourselves here in this almost seemingly what in the world is John talking about passage. So as we read through this, we say, well, what is he trying to hammer home for us? What is he trying to get to convey to us so that we can learn and we can glean some truths from this very extensive exchange at one of the Jewish festivals. Well, first off, I think that whenever we start to study the book of John, and this applies not just to this passage, but to any passage about the gospel of John, we have to put it within context of what John himself says that he is doing. Because you see, as we study through the book, and as, as you continue on to look at the gospel, you will come to a passage in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Well, John will say, the purpose of what is written here is so that you may know, so that all who read may know that Jesus is the Christ. And so whenever we start understanding it in that context, we realize that everything from the first word of the gospel to the last word of the gospel is not about teaching us how to have our best life now, but it is about teaching us and making sure that the readers of this gospel, whether we're in the first century or the 21st century, understand that the one message John is conveying to the readers is that this Jesus is who he claims he is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is the one who can fulfill our very needs. That we may think that our greatest need is to have food on the table at lunch or not having to wait for an hour at a table in Cracker Barrel whenever we get done here. But yet the gospel here is saying that John is conveying to us our greatest need is not to have shelter over our head and food in our stomach, but for us to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And when we say Jesus is the Christ, I don't mean to say that somewhere in Jerusalem there's a mailbox with Jesus Christ on it. What I mean to say is that whenever we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are making a statement about who we believe he is. That he is the Messiah. That he has fulfilled our greatest need. That he has fulfilled and provided a bridge for us to the Father. So that one day when Revelation chapter 20 and 21 comes, we can stand in front of him unashamed and say, we trust in Christ. But as we're looking at this passage, how does John do this for us? How is John in this particular passage proving to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God? Whereas we're looking, the scene opens up for us. If you remember from uh, Aaron's sermon last week, it ended with Jesus claiming that he has the eternal words of eternal life, that he is the one and he is the only one who can provide eternal life to his people. And then John says immediately after that, immediately after we start to kind of piece what's going to happen to Jesus together, he, he launches right into this story 
story and he shows that Jesus is in Galilee celebrating one of the many festivals that the Old Testament commands the Jewish people to celebrate. And that is the festival of booths. It's a seven day celebration. The people literally live in tents as they did in the wilderness during their wilderness wanderings in order to do two things to celebrate how God has provided for them now through a great harvest and to celebrate how God provided for them in their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. That this was a reminder that we find ourselves in the middle of this festival and the Jewish people are being reminded about the goodness of God throughout all of the ages. That no matter what stage of their national life they have been a part of, they are celebrating that they have a good God. And a God who even at the depths of their doubting about Him has still provided everything they could have ever needed. And I would even argue everything they could have ever wanted. And yet in this passage where we see that people should be very clearly knowing what's going on with Jesus standing in the temple and Jesus making these arguments about who he is. This is also the point in the gospel where John starts to build the crescendo of opposition that is going to take place in later chapters. You see, this is the point at which John starts to write and he starts to build and he starts to show that even though Jesus is doing all of these wonderful things, there is an ever growing opposition to him. There is an ever growing opposition to his teaching. There is an ever growing opposition to who he claims to be and that even though he can prove it to them. There's people whose eyes do not want to see and people whose ears do not want to hear what he is teaching. And I want you to notice where John starts that. Look here in verses 1 through 13. John starts this story for us by showing that this unbelief is not just taking place among the leaders of the Jewish people. It is taking place among the very people that he is pouring his life into. I want you to notice the conversation here that they have with Jesus. It's starting in verse 3. His brothers, and and we think here that probably they're literally referring to the other children, the other uh, males that Mary gave birth to. All right, so his brothers, meaning Jesus' brothers, said to Jesus, Leave here and go to to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, no Notice here what they say, show yourself to the world. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, show yourself, make yourself known. And this is not the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees seeing this. These are the people who have dined at the table with him, who have shook his hand, who have hugged him, who have seen his mother and father, who have witnessed his miracles. And they're still saying, prove yourself to be the Christ. 
Prove yourself, Jesus. Prove yourself. And notice his response is not, okay, let's go down there. I'm going to prove this to you real quick. I've got something to prove and I'm going to show it to you. Notice his response is not yet. His response to their questioning is not, all right, I've got something to prove and I'm going to hop on Facebook and I'm going to prove it to you. His response, not yet. Can you imagine what their minds were thinking? What, Jesus? You've got all of these people gathered together. They're living in tents. They're, they're congregated together. And you can prove not only to us, but you can prove to them that you are exactly who you say you are. And you say, not yet? Have you got to be kidding me? Are you joking with me? Are you pulling my leg, Jesus? But that's exactly what he says. Because look what he knew about them in verse 5. He knew that not even his brothers, the ones who were challenging him, believed in him. And he knew that even if he had tried to prove it, it would have made no difference. It would have made no difference in their hearts. It would have made no difference in their minds. Because look here what he says. My time has not yet come. And so we see here where this scene opens up. We see that even Jesus's disciples, even his closest confidants are found to be unbelieving. They are found to be unbelieving. Look at how John ends this section in verse 7. I want you to look here what he says here. I'm sorry. Look here what he says here in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, quoting Jesus, but it hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil, that its works are evil. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Hone in on verse 7. Hone in on what Jesus is saying there. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, disciples, go do your thing. Go up to the festival if you think that is necessary. But I'm going to send you up there with a word that you're wanting this proof. You're wanting me to go up to this festival and prove to these people that I am who I say I am. But notice here he says, no matter what I do, they are not going to believe me because look here what he calls them. He says their works are evil. And that is the root of this unbelief. That is why Jesus knows his time has not yet come. That is why Jesus knows that no matter what he does, 
His time has not yet come, and the time for the revelation of Him as the Christ has not yet come, because the world is not wanting to hear it. The world is incapable of hearing it, because the world's works are evil. That those who are even found among Him who are unbelieving, their work is evil. But then he continues on. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the festival. And then we find in verse 10, he decides to go up, not in publicly, but in private. So he's there wandering around this festival. He has decided he's not going to do any works. But look here what happens. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they are saying, where is he? Even the Jewish leaders, who we think was probably the Sanhedrin, said, where is this Christ? Where is this Messiah? And notice what they say about him at the end of verse 12. They say, is he a good man? And then others said, no, he is leading people astray. Do you see here that when they are trying to figure this out, they are looking at Jesus walking. Don't forget, this is the same Jesus that they know has already done some miracles. This is the same Jesus who has already turned water into wine. This is the same Jesus who has already had John the Baptist testify about him. This is the same Jesus who has already healed a man who sat by a pool for 37 years. And yet their questions still remain. Who is he? Some valid... Uh, some wanted to validate him and say he's a good man. But then notice here, others said, no, he leads people astray. He leads people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one, not even his brothers who knew in their mind what he had done, would speak openly and stand up for him would speak openly and stand up for him. So that's how John opens this. It is Jesus has all of this unbelief just swirling around him. Everyone from those who know him to those who just saw him walking in the festival are saying, this man is nothing. This man is leading people astray. This man is not the Messiah. But then I want you to notice what Jesus does. Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. All of us can confirm that. I wish I had the time to show you. But Jesus knows what is happening in their hearts and minds. And I want you to notice how John weaves this story together. Starting in verse 14. Where he shows that in order to combat this unbelief, Jesus doesn't rain down the roofs of the temple on them. Jesus doesn't punch back and say, aha, I gotcha. Notice where Jesus goes in verses 14 through 24. Jesus stands up, he goes to the temple. I'm sorry, in the middle of the feast, so we're assuming this is around day three or four, Jesus goes up to the temple and he begins to teach. And we know that because he's in the temple and because of the things that he's saying, Jesus is teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. 
Jesus is not going to come in here and he is not going to do a whole bunch of miracles. He is going to tell the people, search the scriptures, search what you know the Messiah should be and see if it lines up. That he has nothing to defend. Notice this. Jesus doesn't start punching back at the Sanhedrin. He says, I am going to stand up in the temple. I am going to start teaching. And his teaching is so great that in verse 15, they say, how is it that this man has learning? How is it that this man has never studied and yet he knows the scriptures better than anyone in the audience? How is it that this son of a carpenter who has never had formal education, who has never been to rabbi school, who has never studied under the great rabbis of the day, how is it that he knows the scriptures? Notice they don't say, well, hold on, Jesus, you misinterpreted that one. Hold on just a minute, Christ, or Jesus, you, you're not the Christ because you don't fully understand that passage. Notice they don't even have anything they can say about his interpretation of the scriptures. Their, their question is not, did he get it right? Their question is, how in the world does he know that? How in the world does he know these things? And look how Jesus answered them. He says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Do you notice how Jesus replies to them? He doesn't say, well, let me go get three proofs and a philosopher and let me let me teach you the original languages and let me uh, let me parse some words up here for you. He says, no. He says, the reason I have this learning and the reason you are amazed by this learning is because it comes straight from the one who wrote it. It is because what I am telling you is what the scriptures teach is because what I am telling you is the, is of the one who sent me. And of course, we know that he is talking about God, the father. But then he jumps on down and he and in the rest of the verses, he starts his kind of dialogue with them. And he says, well, if you circumcise on the Sabbath, why is it that I can't heal on the Sabbath? And so after Jesus says he has searched the scriptures, after Jesus says, you will know I am the Christ if you know the scriptures, he then turns around and he says, look at what I have done for you. Look at what I have done for your people in the time I have been on this earth. He says, you circumcise on the Sabbath. You give a symbol that Moses said you should give on the Sabbath. But then look how he turns it around and he says, I didn't just make a symbol on the Sabbath. I made it made a man's body well on the Sabbath. And he's pointing to the fact that we know what's going to happen is that when Christ comes and when Christ appears in all of his glory, he, he is starting, John is starting to pick up on this theme that he's going to finish in the book of Revelation, where he is going to say that when we are found in the new creation, our bodies will be made whole again. 
that when we rest in Him, as we should rest on the Sabbath, our bodies will be made whole again. But the particular thing that Jesus is pointing to here is the miracle of where He healed a man who had been laying by a pool as invalid for 37 years, just two chapters earlier in John chapter 5. And so Jesus is saying, you have seen from the scriptures, you have searched the scriptures and you see that what I teach is true. Now look at the power that I have over creation that a man who has been laying by a pool who you could do nothing for, I healed him and he got up and walked away. That for 37 years, you allowed this man to sit by the pool as an invalid and you cared nothing for him. And I walked over to him and said, get up and walk. And he got up and walked. What more sign do you need? What more do you need to prove that he is the Christ? And there are those in the crowd who get it. There are those in the crowd who are paying attention to what Jesus is saying and they start to understand. They start to see, well, wait just a minute. This guy has been prophesied for thousands of years. He commands even nature. Maybe we should start paying attention. And then John cuts away. Look what he does in verse 25. This is very interesting. I had never noticed this until I was studying this passage of Scripture this week. I want you to look what John does. He cuts away. If we were in a movie scene, we, we would see that in the beginning that Jesus' disciples are on belief, and then we would pan to the temple, and we would see that Jesus is teaching and proving who He is. And then in verse 25, the camera would cut away to a side conversation taking place. Notice here what he says. Notice here what he records, rather. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, in response to Jesus' points, Is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? It is said almost like we know the answer. We, we know the answer to this. Yes, this is the man who the religious leaders are seeking to kill. This is the man who they want dead. Yet this is the man who knows Scripture better than they do and commands nature better than they do. Why would they want him dead? Why would the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, why would they want him gone? He can do stuff they can't. He understands things they don't understand. What in the world is going on here? But here, they want him dead. Yet here he is, he's speaking openly. And notice the question. I want you to look at this. Look at this in your Bible. The question that verse 26 ends with. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ. I want you to imagine being one of those four, five, maybe two people standing by the edge. You're in the temple. You're seeing what goes on. And all of a sudden, it clicks in your head. Wait just a minute. They're pulling our leg. Wait just a cotton-picking minute here. This man claims to be Christ. They have nothing to refute it. Can it be that he is who he says he is? Is it possible? 
And of course, we know the answer to be yes. We know that the answer is absolutely. But I want you to notice here too, they say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Notice they don't call him by his name. They don't say, as I mentioned before, there's not a mailbox in Jerusalem with Jesus or Christ, Jesus on it. Because when we call him the Christ, we are, it is not part of his name. It is a claim about who he is. And so when they say, is this the Christ? What they are saying is, is this the one we have waited thousands of years for? Is this the one that we have finally seen with our eyes? Is this the one that during the 40-year wilderness they cried out and said, God, save us? Is this the one that throughout the, all of the Old Testament they were looking forward to? And here he is standing in front of us. Could it possibly be? Could it possibly be? And then notice they start to doubt themselves. How could it be? We know, we know where this man comes from. We know Mary. We know Joseph. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. See, verses 25 and ver through verse 27 is this shot of them sowing this side conversation. But then I want you to notice what happens in verse 28. Jesus is standing in front of these people and he is teaching. And yet back in the back corner over there, they're having this conversation. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts answering their objections. How can he be the Christ if we know him? How can he be the Christ if we know his parents? How can he be the Christ because we know where he comes from? And then Jesus says, I know their thoughts. I know what they're saying. And then look here. He answers their objections. He says, you know me. And you know where I have come from. We might take that as, a, as a, an emphasis that he's agreeing with them. But I want you to look here in verse 28. That statement ends with a question mark. That statement is a question. Jesus looks at them and says, you claim to know where I come from. You claim to know who I am, but do you really? You claim you know my parents, but you don't know me. You don't know where I came from because look here. He says, I, although you may, you may have known I was born in Bethlehem, you may have known who my parents are, but look where he says, I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and you do not know him. I want you to notice they're having this side conversation. They say, Jesus, we know where you've come from. How could it be that you are the Christ? And he looks directly at them. And he says, no, you don't. No way. Jose, there is no way because you don't know the father. You know that I was born of Mary and you know that Joseph is a righteous man and he raised me. And you know that I worked in his wood shop, but you don't know the one that I come from. You don't know my purpose. You, you don't know where I come from. And then look how John ends this little section of scripture. They get told, those little, you know, those people gossiping in the corner over here. They get told, you don't know what you're talking about. And notice their response to this message. 
Because I can only imagine what would happen if I got told that, right? If I was standing in church and Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about, my first thing would be Google a few things, send a couple articles to him, let him know that I do know what I'm talking about, right? We've all been there. We know what it is. But notice that is not their response. I want you to notice here. He ends this. Their response is when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It's a rhetorical question. It's, it's written as a rhetorical question. We all know the answer when we read that. No. There is no way for him to do more signs. In fact, we know from the end of the gospel, there are signs and miracles that take place that we don't even know about. And yet these people are sitting here, they're looking at his teaching, they're looking at his life, they're looking at the miracles he's done, and they're saying, if this man is not the Christ, there is no way anybody else is. That when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? No, he will not. And so here we see that this passage, it starts out with these unbelieving disciples. And then Jesus drives home the point to them. Search the scriptures so that you may know who he is. And then we have the people who are listening to his teaching. Not the Jewish leaders, but the people who are listening to his teaching, who are having something happen in their hearts, in their minds. They are saying there is no other answer to this, but we have to confirm he is the Christ. He is who he says he is. And then I want you to notice what Jesus does. I want you to notice how Jesus takes this moment and he turns it in to not only telling about what's going to come, but also preaching the gospel to them. You see here, because the Pharisees, they, they start murmuring. They're like, hold on, this thing's getting out of control. Wait just a minute. We got we to gotta control this thing. Jesus is really about to get out of hand here. This, this temple's about to start rioting here. We don't know what is going to take place. And then notice, Jesus just bursts forth again. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him, meaning God, who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they say, well, where does this man intend to go? Where is he going to Greece? There, there's some Jews there that have gone there to Greece. Is he going to the Greeks? Is, is he going to teach? What in the world does he mean by this? And then the last day we see in verse 37 at the very end. Look here how he responds to where are you going Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm just going a few cities over. Oh, I'm going up a hill. Or, you know, I'm going on vacation. I'll be back in a week. Why don't you wait around on me? Look here what he says in verse 37. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. These people have been living in a desert, in tents, for seven days. Living in a tent in a desert for seven days. Do you think their tongue was sticking to the top of their mouth by now? Do you think they might have some trouble forming their words? Do you think that maybe the water was running short? And yet Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is showing them, and he's going he's gonna to play this out in verse 38 here, that you know what? You may have some temporary thirst, 
but out of the one who comes to me, out of his heart, look here what he says, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says you may think that that temporary thing that you're calling thirst is what you need to be quenched. But really there is some deep, dark issues going on in your heart and your mind. And what you really need is not a drop of water, but you need a heart transformation so that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John ends here. He ends this verse by telling us how this is exactly going to take place. Now notice here, this is where John, he starts to pick up on this, this gospel teaching, this, this belief teaching, this accepting Christ in our heart teaching where he says the spirit is going to come to all who believe they will be received. The spirit hasn't come yet because Jesus hasn't been glorified. But when Jesus is glorified, he says, you will fully understand because once you have these living waters coming out, then your life will be changed. You see, as we look here at these 39 verses, it's a pretty powerful testimony. It is a pretty powerful writing that John has given us. That if you only can live for one thing, if you can only grasp one thing, if you can only understand one thing, know that our greatest need, know that our, our greatest longing is not to have a peaceful afternoon. It is not to live this life trouble-free. It is not to have perfect relationships with everyone around us, but our greatest need is to have Christ. Our greatest need is for Him to transform our lives. Because you see, until that happens, the, the John is very clear, the gospel writers are very clear, Paul is very clear, Peter, when he writes, is very clear, John, when he writes his revelation, is very clear that if we want peace, it comes through Christ. If we want a life that has purpose and meaning, it comes through Christ. If, if we want our greatest heart desires, it comes through Christ. Because once we have Christ, our desires start to be aligned with Him. And we will experience life as we have never experienced it before. Because out of us will flow living waters. I'll leave you with a few final thoughts this morning. First, is that just as Jesus started this passage, we can glean from that, even though he doesn't strictly say it, we can glean from that, that God's timing is not ours. God's timing is not ours. You see, Jesus could have gone about this a very different way. But he knew his purpose. He knew what he was doing. And he knew that in due time, he would be revealed as Christ, that his followers would be called to him, and that everyone would know who he was. Secondly, or firstly, God's timing is not ours. Secondly, Christ has proven 
who he is. You see, we're a day and an age. We believe in science, right? We, we, we want proofs. We want to be able to say, I know Christ is real because I looked at the sky this morning and there was a crucifix standing there. And so I know that Christ is real. But we see from this passage, that's not how he operates. Because you see, if we won't believe with the testament of the miracles and we won't believe with the testament of Scripture, then we're not going to believe if he was standing in front of us. Because here's a whole group of people who had Jesus standing in front of them and still said, how can we kill him? Here's a group of people who literally could reach out and touch his side and said, I want him dead. We have all that we need for belief. We have all that we need to know that Christ is who he says he is. And it's here in the scriptures and it is the testament of every single heart and life that is a change as a result of the gospel. And then lastly, and this is a truth that is woven throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is that we trust as God's people in God's promises. I don't think any of us would consider, at least I've never met anyone, who would consider 2020 an easy year. We've experienced things that all of us thought we would never see, that we thought we would just read in a history book and fall asleep in during a high school history class. But yet, we have experienced it. We, we've had to learn how to navigate life in a new way. And we've had those who had disagreements on that. And that's on top of just the everyday thing that happens every other year. The death that naturally happens every year. The disease that naturally happens every year. I don't think any of us, I've never met anybody. If you think this has been an easy year, please let me know. So I can see what it is you did to make it an easy year. But this has been an incredibly rough year, yet the gospel, yet John still screams out to us from 2,000 years ago, trust in the promises of Christ. Trust in the promises of Christ. That if this man can heal a leopard, I'm sorry, if this man can heal an invalid who has been sitting by a pool for 37 years, he's got COVID. He can handle it. That if this is a God who can change water into wine so that the guests can be happy, He knows what our ultimate happiness is. And it's often not what we want. And that even if we're not happy with how the year's gone, even if we're not happy with how the election turned out, even if we're not happy with our bank account, if we're not happy with our job, if we're not happy with our degrees, if we're not happy with our kids, if we're not happy with whatever, John here pulls this eternal truth back for us. Trust in the promises of God. That if he can stand in the temple and say, I know what's best for my people, then he's standing in the hearts of his people today saying, I still know what's best for my people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish today. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can come and that we can study your scriptures, Lord, and that your scriptures confirm to us who you are, but they also mold and shape our lives today. 
And Lord, we ask that as we have our next few moments here, that you would continue to keep our hearts and our minds focused upon you. And that as we depart from here, we would be a people who's, who has been pierced, who has been, hearts have been pricked by your word. And that though we never claim to be a perfect people, because we know the church is a place for imperfect people, Lord, we do ask that through the reading of your word, you would show us how we can be better followers of you, transformed by our faith that is in you. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. We will.